couple of uh, explaining to you where we are. We had a series prepared and ready to go that we were going to uh, stick in here weeks before uh, summer vacation. But uh, I found myself, and I can't speak for you, but I found myself really into the Gospel of John when we were studying it, especially toward the end when we were looking at uh, almost the human side of what was going on. Obviously the doctrine to be sure, but the humanity of these guys. I found myself enthralled by Paul's or, or Peter's story, what was going on in his life. And uh, maybe it's a true confession time for me, but uh, I don't think I'm going to tell you anything you don't already know. I don't tend to be a real emotional type of a person. Uh, I'm not really into feelings. I, I, uh, I don't think it works. And it kind of just mess things up. So I tend to be fairly analytical, and, and, and at times, perhaps even a, a little bit on the on the stone side, a little cold. You and I live at a time, especially within the church, where there's lots of people that all they run on is feeling. Everything is feeling for them. Everything is emotion for them. They pick up that Sunday paper, they see there's a Safeway opening, and they're moved to tears. And they're touched, and they're rattled, and this everything. Well, those people clearly need some doctrine, Christianly speaking. But guys like me, I think, have made a, a pretty big mistake. And the mistake that we've made is to minimize the experience. We spent some time last Sunday night in church talking about Romans chapter 5, verse 1, peace with God. And because I have peace with God, I have the peace of God. They go hand in hand. If you are a Christian, inevitably, you must begin to experience the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And you must have the peace of God. Inevitably, it flows out of this. And we tend to minimize the experience, or I tend to. Well, in looking at Peter's life, in seeing the experience that he had face-to-face with Christ last week. Jesus says to him, do you love me? Three times. And he answers, yes. He says, follow me. And I thought it was interesting to take the series that we had planned and put it aside and just kind of pick up with what uh, I have very uh, cleverly called the rest of the story. Four weeks before we get occasion, Today we look at our marching orders. What is it that you and I are to be doing? What are we about? Next week, the first revival meeting ever held. The third week, believe it or not, your biography is in the book of Acts. It's there. The third week, we're going to look at it. Then, since I'm leaving town for five weeks, we're going to talk about what a church should be. Figure you can't get at me or hurt me in that way. We got this dark across the top of the screen. That usually means the bulb is fading. So hang on. We'll see what happens. So that's what we're going to go through in the next four weeks. The rest of the story, picking up in the book of Acts, the very next page. If you have a Bible, you finish the Gospel of John. It goes right into the book of Acts. It's the very next page. Book of Acts, let me give you just a quick little bit of information about it. William Barclay, in his commentary, writes in the book of Acts, and he says this, Luke... Luke's the fellow who wrote the book of Acts. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke's great aim was to show the expansion of Christianity, 
to show how that religion, which began in a little corner of Palestine, reached Rome in a little more than 30 years. This little religion, which started with 11 guys locked in a room, scared to death, terrified, living in horror that, that uh, one of the Sanhedrin or the Jewish leaders would come and, and uh, carouse them, uh, round them up and kill them, within 30 years is spread all over the world. How did that happen? And Luke writes this book to try to tell us how it happens. And we're just going to work our way today through the first 11 verses. And again, they'll be on the screen for you. The first 11 verses of this book. Here's what he says. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. That's how he says book. He writes to the guy, he's writing to Theophilus. In the Gospel of Luke, the first four verses of the first chapter, Luke says to Theophilus, I've investigated this stuff thoroughly. I'm writing you this book, the Gospel, in order that you might know the truth about the things you've been taught. He said, that's why I wrote this book. I've investigated it thoroughly. Let me hope you understand the guy that's writing the book of Acts. He is by trade a physician, by advocation a historian. He is, uh, writes flawless literature. You've got a doctor who likes history and literature. You've got a guy that's a bit of a duck here. This guy is odd, idiocentric, all over. And when he says to Theophilus, I indicated this stuff carefully, what he's saying is, I went out, I did my homework. He was Bob Woodward of the day. And if you read the Gospel of Luke, you'll see a very detailed account of how Mary found out that she was pregnant. Of that whole early birth and first few days of Jesus' life. You know where he got that? I believe he went out and he sat down with Mary and he said, Mary, how did this happen? How did this go? And maybe they even had people there. Maybe they even said, we've got a first-time caller. I've got a question and a comment. And he did his homework. And he wrote volume one. That's the Gospel of Luke. Now he writes volume two. It's the book of Acts. Volume one was about all that Jesus did up until the time he ascended into heaven. Volume two picks up at exactly that point. The main character in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. The phrase Holy Spirit appears 40 times in the book. The word Spirit, with a capital S, speaking of the Holy Spirit, appears over 60 times in the book. The key verse in this book is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Let me read it to you. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. It's the key verse. Two things, the Holy Spirit and power. We live at a time, now the battle lines are being drawn. We've got Bill Clinton now has Al Gore. George Bush is going to stay with Dan Quayle. Ross Perot still trying to figure it out. Uh, I have a suspicion, you haven't heard anybody say this, I have a suspicion he may not run. This is my gut reaction. I think he may fade away. This is just my just sheer speculation on my part. Nobody says that, see? So if I'm right, I look like a hero. If I'm wrong, you go, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about anyway, so it doesn't make any difference. 
but I think you're seeing this guy backpedal. He didn't want any part of this accident. He didn't want to get into this fray. So you got all these parties that are lined up. They have everything's in place. And they're going to talk about how they're going to empower you as people. They have no power to give you as people. They can talk about political, social, economic solutions. They can't give you real power. Not the power that Jesus is going to give you through the Holy Spirit. That's what the book of Acts is about. How do I truly empower people? Power them through the Holy Spirit. Just a quick excursion through these first few verses. Jesus began to do and teach. And that little phrase began means exactly what it says. He started it. There's a continuing process here. It goes on. There is a sense in which the book of Acts is still being written. There's a sense in which you and I, as Christian men and women, you and I are still writing the pages of the book of Acts. Your job and mine, now that Jesus is out of the picture, Jesus is now in heaven, your job and mine is to make the invisible God visible. And there's a sense in which we do that. You're his eyes, his ears, his mouth, his hands, his feet. You are. He said, I wrote about that. Now I want to pick up the story. Book of Acts is a transitional book. It is a book that is placed strategically between the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and before the Epistles, Romans and all that goes after that. And there is a balance in this book. It is obviously doctrinal, but it is transitional, and it can be very easily misunderstood. And those are some of the areas we won't get into and talk about. But he said this, Jesus began to do them, and he taught them. That's our life. Teach it and do it. Paul sets the pattern when he writes the book of Ephesians. Three chapters, doctrine. You had to read the book of Ephesians. First three chapters. Hard-hitting, difficult doctrine. You know what the first word of the fourth chapter is? Therefore. Since all this is true, now live this way. Since all this doctrine is true, now wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wife. Children, obey your parents. Don't be angry. Slaves, submit to your masters. Why? Because they deserve it? No. Because all this doctrine is true. Book of Romans, same thing. Eleven chapters of doctrine. First word, twelfth chapter, first verse. Therefore, since all this is true, now we've got to do it. That's your challenge and mine. Some of you have this doctrinal stuff down cold. I was talking with a guy who's working with our junior hires at church. I said, what are you, what are you finding there? Pretty interesting. He said, we start at the beginning of the year and we said to them, what is a Christian? Are you a Christian? When did you become a Christian? And asked them, made them answer these questions. He said almost every one of them had the answers cold. Almost every one of them knew every one of these answers. But he said, I don't know if it's in their heart. I'll guarantee in this room there's some of you that got these answers cold. You're almost sermon-proof. Almost can't get you. Periodically, there's a little crack in the armor. You can see it and try to get in. But it's not just enough to know what it is. Now I've got to do it. Now I've got to be it. If I have the peace with God, now I have to live a life that demonstrates the peace of God. If I'm going to walk in here with a Bible or walk in here and make some claims of Christianity, it has to reflect itself in my life. 
there must be a difference. He says, that's how this started. Now I'm coming back. Here he says in, in, in verse 3, he says this, To these he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. If you get into this kind of stuff, that little phrase, convincing proofs, only time you'll see it in the New Testament. Luke tells us in the 24th chapter, in the 39th verse, that when Jesus came back, they touched him. They felt him. They ate with him. He taught them. There was an intimacy there. He didn't appear once and go away and they go, gee, I wonder if that was really him. Did we imagine it? Oh, I ate it. Peter Piper, maybe it's that. Who knows what it could be? Now he comes again and again and again, convincing proofs. No room for doubt. And now these guys with their transformed lives. Forty days he's there, speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. I want you to see this. Because we could read right through this very quickly, and I don't want to do it. We'll move quickly through it, but I want you to get this point. He gathered them together, and he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait. Some of you have taken that command to heart. You're still waiting. He took them, and he said, wait, for a very specific reason. To wait for what the Father had promised. What had the Father promised? The Holy Spirit. And we don't have time to talk about the Holy Spirit now. We did a tape in uh, March um, of 91, a complete hour on the Holy Spirit. Obviously, you could do books and volumes on it, but much more detail. If you're interested in that, all you got to do is order it, and they'll make sure they mail it to you. They said, wait for the Holy Spirit. He tells us in John's Gospel, Jesus says, when I'm gone, a comforter comes. A helper comes. The Holy Spirit will come. What's the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is God. Equal to God. It is God. What's the Holy Spirit do? A whole bunch of stuff. Holy Spirit convicts me of sin. If you're a Christian, somebody just today said, hey, they were pointing out to me something that I'd said to them 11 years ago that was very offensive. And I explained to them, I'm very sorry, and I apologize. You know, I am deeply sorry. I sought the person out after they met it and said, I want you to know, I don't think I said that publicly. And they said, well, you didn't say it publicly. You said it at our table one night at dinner. I said, I want you to know, I am really sorry. He said, well, I have, I've pretty much forgot about it. <laughs> but he said, you born againers sometimes think you're so good. And I didn't get into the debate. He doesn't have, an, he doesn't have a clue over to it. It's not an understanding at all. I continue to sin and sin every day. But I've been forgiven for that. I confess that. And I go on. I continue to sin. But one of the things the Holy Spirit does, He uses that term born-againers, He uses it in a pejorative way. It's, it's Jesus' words, not mine. You must be born again. What's that? Well, the Holy Spirit gives me a new heart. That's not something else the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. When you sin, what is in there convicting you? Holy Spirit is. He says to these guys, wait. 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 Don't go out. Stay in Jerusalem. How long? Till the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit then comes. He said this, For you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, that little phrase, baptized with the Holy Spirit, has caused a lot of controversy. 
Here's what I think it says. It doesn't speak of something that comes after I become a Christian. It speaks of that moment. Some of my friends that are involved in, the, in some charismatic and Pentecostal churches will ask me over and over again, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? And my answer is, yeah, I'm a Christian. Because I think that's what that means. We're all baptized with the Holy Spirit. That word baptism there actually is very similar. I'm going to give this. Some of you don't care, but some of you care very much about this. That's the same way it's used in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2. It means unified. The Holy Spirit comes and unifies the believer. We're all one in the body. We're all baptized as Christians now. Some of you aren't Christians. This doesn't apply to you. I'm baptized. I'm in the body. Now, here's what I want you to see, because I think this is pretty interesting. It's this phrase here. And so, Luke connects all of this together. Every once in a while, we have this view, I think, that the apostles are like 11 uh, Barney Fife's hanging out, you know, that they, you know, and where's the bullet? Let's figure out this doctrinal stuff and what's going on here. Like there's some kind of goofs. But gee, you know, it's kind of gee whiz, I'm just proud to be a part of all this, and boy, oh boy, is this something. Golly gee. No, no, no. Jesus says to them, you'll be baptized by the Holy Spirit many days from now, and so, because of what He said, they said, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They knew the Old Testament. They knew the prophet Joel. They knew that this baptism of the Holy Spirit was somehow in their mind connected with the end times. Is this it? Is what they're saying. I love this teaching, by the way. Is this it? They're all excited. Oh man, this is the end of the world. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the time and the place. I need to spend just a second on verse 7. It's not for them to know the time and the place. Here you go. It's not for you to know the time of the place. He says, you don't want to know. Think about this with me for a second. What if you knew that Jesus was going to come again in the year 2020 and that you were going to live until then? What if you knew that? What would you do? What would your life be like? Let me help you answer that. It would be like when they said, the final test will be May 23rd. Oh, really? Hmm. May 23rd. Well, let's all get a study group together on the 22nd. <laughs> you do this chapter, you do this chapter, you do this chapter. It's like, and you'll hear it, every time I go to an NBA game or talk about it, inevitably somebody makes this comment. Usually somebody who's never played basketball, who's, uh, who's fat and, and, and unathletic will always say, oh, those guys are paid way too much money. They're not athletes to start with. And they don't even try until the last two minutes. Two minutes. You hear it every time. But this guy doesn't understand. You're looking at the best athletes in the world. Okay? And these guys are paid. You may disagree with the value system, but they're paid what you, as a ticket holder, have deemed them to be worth. And they tend to be more on the labor side than the management side of most of that. And that's just the way it is. And there is a sense in that they play 82 games, they got legs as skinny as mine, they're pounding them up and down the court. 
they worked very hard. They got X amount. They got a finite amount of energy and endurance. There's a sense in which, like any good athlete, any good businessman, any good mom, any good dad, that they pace themselves. And when they hear two minutes, two minutes, to be sure, they crank it up. If you knew it was 2020, that the Lord was coming, you know what you'd wait to hear? Two minutes, two minutes. And you know what you'd do when you got the two-minute call? Hit the snooze button and say, call me when it's one minute, because I do want to do something for Jesus before He comes. It's a great act of mercy that God doesn't let you know when He's going to come. It's a great act of, of His grace to not let you know. One time they asked Martin Luther, and you either like Luther or you don't like Luther. He's like Rush. You either like him or you don't. We're listening to Rush the other night. Rush now comes on at 10 o'clock, as you know, on the radio. So we got him, but we can listen to him in bed. It's the second best thing you can do there. I was telling Susan, this is pretty good right here. Here's Rush. By the way, they just gave me the note that they picked Channel 12, picked up his TV show. So we're all excited about that. Starting September, when is that? September 7th? All the Channel 3 people, don't be offended. At 11.35, so this is a big deal, big deal. Luther said, they said, Martin. Marty, they called him. Marty, if you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, what would you do? And Luther's answer was, I'd plant a tree. Was he some kind of echo nut or what is it? What is the thing? Plant a tree. Oh, what's the rest of the sentence? He said, if my job was to plant a tree, I'd plant a tree. Here's what he's saying. I am living as though he were coming tomorrow. Every Wednesday morning at 4.15, I hear these same words. Eyes closed. Hand out, I hear Susan say, Tommy, drive carefully. And I'm on my way to Tucson. Be careful. Don't kill yourself. In my life, I'm trying to plan as though I'm going to live to 2020 or 2030. I'm trying to make sound financial decisions. I'm trying to do those things. I'm trying to plan as though I'll live to 2030. But I'm living as though I'm going to live till noon tomorrow. That's the way a Christian is called to live. To be diligent about my planning, to be sure. To be concerned about the future. I have obligations to Susan and to the girls. Sound planning to our whole family as we get older. But I'm not supposed to live like I'm going to live until 2030. I'm supposed to live like next week on the way to Tucson. The car goes in the viaduct. It's over. And although I fail, and fail miserably, that's the motive in my life. I am trying to live like tomorrow is it. And I would suggest you need to do that too. You don't want to know when it's coming. Everybody's sitting around. When's he going to come? When's he going to come? The Lord is near. You turn on Christian TV at night, you can't get a night where there isn't some guy saying, Jesus is coming. Glory! Today could be the day. That's fine. That's okay. But do you understand that's what these guys are saying here in Acts chapter 1? 
<laughs> They've been saying this for 2,000 years. Why? Because God deliberately left it that way so that you would live like He was coming tomorrow. This is really a challenge. That's the way you're supposed to live. What are you waiting for? What are you holding back for? I was with a guy, a pretty high-profile guy. with a bunch of us around. I was there by special invitation. We're talking back and forth. And I'm listening to all these people. They're talking about his ministry, and they're talking about what's going on in the future and all this. And they kept saying, Boy, be careful. Don't burn yourself out. Boy, be careful. Don't burn yourself out. Don't burn yourself out. Don't burn yourself out. So I went up afterwards. I said, Hey, you know, I, I kind of like a tag-along here, and I don't want to... I certainly wouldn't say anything to you publicly. But it seems to me like our call is to not burn ourselves out, but burn ourselves up for the Lord Jesus Christ. I should be burning myself out. I should be pursuing His kingdom. You know, there's words that describe us in the Scriptures. Okay, I like to laugh. I'm a fun guy. I'm a riot to be with, all this stuff. I like to laugh and I like to have fun. But I'll tell you what, that's not the call. Paul, Peter kept saying to us, be sober, be somber, be grave. Now, I think that still means, have fun. I took a test once that said, do you think the apostles had water fights in the River Jordan? And I put down, yeah, I think they probably did. I mean, these guys are looking for something to do. I think there's fun involved, but my life is deadly serious. I'll laugh and jack around with anybody for a while, but there's a seriousness to it. I don't have time to jack around with a lot of other stuff. And neither do you. How much trivial garbage is infiltrating your life? There's a fabulous book written called Entertaining Ourselves. No, I'm listening to two guys. This is true. I'm listening to two guys the other day, and this is the debate they're having. Whether professional wrestling is really sports. (laughs) I couldn't believe it if they were serious. Who cares? It doesn't matter. Can you imagine when your life is reduced to whether Hulk Hogan is really an athlete or not? It just doesn't matter. And all of us have some element in there in our life of that. But how much is in yours? I can't speak to the women at this point. Maybe I could, but to the men. You guys that say Jesus is your Lord and Savior... And that's many of you in this room. You you say He's everything. He's my Lord, my Savior, my Master. I ask you, in the last week, have you spent as much time reading what your Lord Master has to say to you as what Joe Gilmartin has to say? Or William F. Buckley? Or Chris Matthews? Or any of them? I doubt it. If He's my Lord and my Master, then what does that mean? Then I'm His slave. You can't serve two masters. I've been thinking about that for a long time. I can move back and forth of it. What's interesting there is, it says this, 
you will serve somebody. You are a slave. Every once in a while, I think, well, I guess I'm a master in here somewhere. No, I'm a slave. The question is, I can't serve two masters. I can only be a slave to one master. If I say Jesus is my Lord, my master, then I'm his slave. What does a slave do but serve obediently, willingly, pouring himself out for that master? That's how Paul described himself. When he said, I've got to think of some way to describe myself, he said, the best term I can think of is bond servant. A bondservant is different from a slave because a slave could be bought out. His freedom could be purchased. A bondservant could never be, uh, never be somehow moved out of the position he was in. Paul says, I'm there for life. And so are you if you know Christ. They ask him this, is this the end times? He says, no, this isn't the end times. You don't need to know that, you goof. He says this, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even the remotest parts of the earth. There's the marching orders. You're going to receive power. You can't do it on your own. The power is going to come from the Holy Spirit. When does the Holy Spirit come upon a person's life? When they become a Christian. At the moment that you're born again, it's a profession of faith. At that moment, I know the power. Greek word, dunamis, dynamite power. I've got real power now through the Holy Spirit to be His witness. Where? All over. Everywhere. You a witness? Now the answer to that is yes. Witnessing isn't optional. Witnessing isn't mandatory. Witnessing is inevitable. You're a witness. question is, what kind of witness are you? Everywhere you go. There's a sign. We had a guy in one of the studies not long ago, and he said, you know, I wrestled for a long time bringing my Bible. He said, I just can't take that thing. I get, I get it out, and I get out in daylight carrying this thing, and man, I, you know, I kind of... You know, I don't bring it, and I don't like it, and and I, and I kept trying to say, what, what, why? You know what the problem is, you know, obviously. He knew that once you saw him with his Bible, there was an identification that inevitably took place. The guy that talked to me this morning, inevitably I witnessed to him when he says, you born-againers. I'm witnessing at that point. The world is watching you. What kind of a witness are you? What's your life say to these people? Your job and mine is to lead a life of integrity, impeccable, above reproach. They're saying the key issue in this presidential campaign will ultimately be character. I don't know who wins at that point. I guess George. That is always the key issue for the Christian. Character, integrity. I was talking with a couple of friends of mine before we started over here. Last night they got into a discussion about what does it mean to be an elder in a church? What are those qualifications? How stringent are they? When do they kick into existence? What does that mean? They're very severe. Why? Integrity. And yet humanness. Where's the tension? Nobody's perfect. 
I'm still going to sin. My charge is to be above reproach, to let no one speak a bad word against me. I've already confessed to you. I just had a guy speak a bad word against me an hour and a half ago. Now the attitude is, how does the guy handle it? How do I handle it when you confront me with my sin? should break my heart. I came across this quote. William Booth, who if I remember correctly, was the founder of the Salvation Army. This quote is about a hundred years old. It's a great quote. He says, I'm of the opinion that the chief danger confronting the coming century, 20th century, will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, Politics without God. Heaven without hell. Get out the two-by-four. Bam! That's exactly where you live. That, this guy, nailed it cold. That is where you live. Religion without a Holy Spirit. All sorts of religion. All sorts of religion that holds to a form of godliness but denies its power, Paul says in 2 Timothy denies his power. That's what religion is. Christianity without Christ. I'm meeting men and women all the time that say they're Christians but don't believe in Christ. I had a long discussion with a guy the other day and we said, boy, we're going round and round and round and round. Boy, we're close, aren't we? I said, no, we aren't. We're miles apart. And then he said, but aren't we saying the same thing? And I said, yes, we're using the same words, different dictionary. You say Jesus, you're talking about a great teacher. I say Jesus, I'm talking about God come in the flesh. He said, I'm a Christian. And I said, no, you aren't. You're not a Christian. Forgiveness without repentance. I can't tell you how many times in the last four or five years I've sat with people, men and women, but I'll talk about the men, who've left their wife, they're shacking up with some bimbo. they got kids at home and they're going to leave the little lady. And I say, how do you feel about that? i got some regrets. What are the regrets? It's going to be hard on the kids. No, it isn't. It's going to be devastating on the kids. What else? Well, that's really it, you know. In fact, Tom, I have a sense of peace about this. And I tell them, that piece is of Satan. You're not a Christian. Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, I used to be in youth ministry. Maybe that's what drove you away. I don't know. But you're not a Christian, I can tell you that. Because you can't have forgiveness without repentance. Politics without God, we're not even going to talk about that. And heaven without hell. The dominant view, when you ask people, what do you have to do to go to heaven? You know what the dominant answer is? The underlying of the dominant answer today is, die. That's all you got to do. Justification by death. Just die because everybody ultimately gets there. And if you screwed it up, you get another try. Or even Jesus is going to give you kind of like an after test where he's going to let you look at your life and then maybe say, do you want to change your vote and now vote? Booth nails it cold. That's the world in which we live. And the Holy Spirit comes along. The Holy Spirit changes it all. Kind of a somber man. Somber message on a hot day, isn't it? Those are our marching orders. I don't know how to get around it. I assume if you're here at noon in the middle of July that you're here for a reason. And I pray that God uses these words to touch your heart.
Many of you, in fact, most of you say you're Christians. If you are, then you better understand, it's time to get going. It's time to live this stuff. Not just believe it, but live it. There's no choice. No action, no fruit, no repentance. You're not a Christian. Wow. How scary is this? When Jesus says, on that last day, depart from me, I never knew you. You know, we're always going, well, this is some sluggo. This is Adolf Hitler or something. And they say, no. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we? Didn't we? Didn't we? You know who he's saying that to? Church people. That scares me right down to my socks. And I pray it puts fear in you. Not in a terrifying, trembling fear. Fear of God and His reverence, His righteousness, His holiness, and your sin, and you come face to face to it, you fall on your face and ask for forgiveness. That's what revival is. Next week we're going to take a look at that first tent meeting. Pretty interesting. We'll take a look at it next week. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and the truth of it. Father, we have to race out of here. We're out of time. And God, we do look forward to the day when we are with You forever. Worshiping You and praising You in heaven comes only through a relationship with Your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask You that You give us the Holy Spirit and the power to believe, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week.